Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're coming back to the issue of Chinese loans and finance and development aid to Africa. And I say coming back because this has been really one of the themes of our program since we started it six years ago. And it's really the key question because if you read the, the kind of mainstream press about what the Chinese are doing, uh, you know, the headline is $75 billion of loans over five years here, $60 billion of grants and money being allocated at the, you know, the China-Africa summit in Johannesburg by Xi Jinping, tens of billions of dollars here. And it is just so perplexing. And then you kind of open up the newspaper and you read another article which says, well, the Chinese actually aren't loaning as much money to Africa as we thought. And the big problem here is that nobody really knows for sure. So what ends up happening is we get these wild swings of predictions, of estimates, of guesses about how much money China is actually giving to Africa, loaning to Africa, granting to Africa, under what terms and how. And so it really becomes extraordinarily confusing. It also plays into a lot of fear that you see in Africa about African debt. Um, so we've recently seen a lot of concerns being raised about Nigeria's debt situation, um, and especially the, the the weight that that a set of new financing agreements with China is going to add, is going to add to that to that um, debt weight. Um, we've seen similar kind of concerns raised in relation to Zimbabwe, to, to Mozambique, to Angola. Um, and so it becomes very difficult to, A, to see what China is actually giving, how much and in what form, but then also how it compares to the rest of the world. So is Africa getting more loans from China or less loans from China compared to the re- to, to other, other developing areas? So a lot of people are now studying the Chinese financing and the loans. A lot of good research is coming out of Johns Hopkins University and Professor Deborah Braudigan's team at the China-Africa Research Initiative. One other person taking a look at that is Matt Furchin, who's an associate professor of international relations at Tsinghua University in Beijing, and he's also a resident scholar at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Matt is a specialist in both China-Africa and China-South America relations, and we're just thrilled to have you back on the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. Listen, Matt, you know... (laughs) I guess I said at the top of the program, I'm completely confused whether China is, you know, loaning tens of billions of dollars to South America and to 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 Africa. Are they giving the money away? Are they loaning it with interest? What are they doing? Because now I get confused, as I said, between the headlines that said there's these massive debt problems that are starting to emerge in parts in these parts of the world. But at the same time, then you also see that, well, they're actually not loaning as much money as we originally thought. Help us kind of clear up where the pendulum is swinging in terms of those two extremes. Well, let me just say something to sort of clarify my own background on this, which is that my primary knowledge of this comes through my interest in research on China and Venezuela. Um, And I know a little bit more about China, South America, China, Latin America, and certainly um, others, including Deborah Brodingham and many, many others are much more knowledgeable than I am uh, about the China-Africa relationship. But recently, um, there have been a few reports, including by Deborah Brodingham's program at, at SICE, that have sort of tried to bring uh, an assessment of the, the Chinese um, finance situation in Latin America into perspective, I mean, in, in Africa into perspective. Um, so so that's part of how I, I come to this. Um, I think part of this is confusing um, in terms of, um, first of all, 
Uh, much of the confusion, as with aid, I think, is that there is a lot of lack of transparency um, on the, the Chinese side. So um, a lot of the scholars and others who look into this find themselves spending a lot of time trying to track down what the actual figures are. So if I had to sort of place the, the blame or the sort of challenge in any one particular place, it's the fact that it actually is confusing and it actually is hard to track down. Um, the other side of it, though, is that there are many different forms um, with which China provides finance, and some of that is more concessional and for development purposes, and some of it's more commercial. Let me ask you, what is, I mean, this is a term that I'm actually confused about. What does actually concessional mean? In my understanding, concessional loans are those that are done um, at a much lower than commercial or what you would get from a regular commercial bank kind of um, interest rate. So there are a number of banks who do this, including the Export-Import Bank primarily from China, but other countries also do this often to aid their own country's companies in doing trade in, in places where there might not be currently enough uh, business or commerce going on or to assist country or companies from the home country. And so you have, you know, kind of obviously, as, as you mentioned, you, you focus a lot on South America. Um, do you, in, in comparing the, the Chinese lending between the between South America and, and Africa, do you see any major difference in the kind of mechanisms that are being used? You know, you mentioned commercial and concessional loans. Uh, do, do you see the kind of the, the makeup of, the, of the, the mix of those two being different in the two different cases? Uh, yeah, I do. So one of the, to me, one of the biggest differences, and this connects to aid as well, because the other big discussion here is about like how much aid is China doing, development aid is China doing in Africa, and this is the other big challenge of trying to assess how much that is or isn't. Basically, China does a fair amount of the concessional lending and also of aid in Africa. It does almost none in Latin America compared. So, and this also relates to institutions. What this basically means is that the China Development Bank does a lot in Latin America, and in particular with Venezuela and for energy, and it does very little comparatively in Africa. And in turn, the Export-Import Bank, which does more concessional lending and aid kind of programs, does more in Africa and less in Latin America. Let's put some numbers to that. Uh, this is quoting the work by Deborah Braudigam's team and Janet Ohm's team at uh, at the Johns Hopkins University China-Africa Research Initiative. They recently came out with a policy brief called How Chinese Money is Transforming Africa. It's not what you think. And they put together some numbers exactly on what Matt was talking about. Chinese financiers' contributions to African loans, 68% of all the loans from 2000 to 2014 in Africa go to the Exim Bank, 16% by the China Development Bank, and then there's a smattering of others that are that are insignificant and not detailed there. So really, the Exim Bank is playing a very important role there. I'd like to bring up a, a perspective that was raised in an interview that we did with the author and the journalist Howard French, who uh, who wrote a book, China's Second Continent. I think that's what it was. China's Second Empire, China's Second Continent. Um, second Continent. Okay. Second Continent. And he he talked about how you know a lot of these loans that are being given to from China to Africa are actually not the lowest loans that a lot of times Africans could benefit by going out onto the international markets, uh, either to the IMF or the World Bank or some of the other international non-governmental organizations. And then the Economist the, just recently came out with a with the report saying that Kenya 
has paid you know vastly too much for the standard gauge railway, highlighting again the problem that the Chinese you know putting in these package of loans, infrastructure development, everything into one neat bundle may not be in the long term best interest of Africa because the the loans, though they may be concessional, still have interest rates attached to them, and over the long term the sheer magnitude of these loans will be very difficult for Africans to repay. And in the end of the game, it's not in the best interest of Africa to take on these loans. Kind of what's your thought on that and, you know, that criticism that is starting to become much more consistent? Sure. And again, in, in, this is something I know a lot more about in the case of, of Latin America. Well, it, let's than, start with Latin America because I'm sure there's some, probably some similarities. Well, and, and, and I think this, what's interesting about this is that I think the discussion about what is aid and how much aid is there, that's really been a lot of the focus of certainly what Deborah Brottingham worked on and others and the aid data project and everything. But actually, a few years ago, um, it was Kevin Gallagher uh, and colleagues of his in Boston that came up with some of the initial assessments of Chinese lending to Latin America. Um, and so they did a lot of this for, you know, sort of clarifying where it was going and who, who, who was getting the loans. And one of the most interesting observations um, that he and his team first came up with was that those taking on the largest loans um, and where China was offering some of the largest loans, again, through the China Development Bank, were those that were the least creditworthy. So at the time, um, this was Venezuela, uh, Argentina. Ecuador um, and Brazil, um, and uh, clearly Venezuela is still the country with the biggest problems. And and there are some of the exact issues that you were talking about. Is like to what extent um, did those countries taking the loans get any any kind of a deal? What have they gotten themselves into now? Um, a lot of those questions are coming home to roost. A lot of it has to do with sort of domestic governance. I don't think there's any one answer to that. But certainly in the case of Venezuela, people are asking a lot of questions about whether or not this was a good deal for either side. Um, and I think another um, mechanism that, that overlaps between Africa and, and, and South America is resource-backed loans. And I, as I um, you know, the, recently there's been a lot of um, a, a lot of concern raised about resource-backed loans in Africa. So obviously these these are these are loans which a country would repay with resources. So for example, you know, kind of like you would get a some kind of loan for infrastructure, and then if you're a country like Nigeria, you would essentially repay in oil. Um, now that certain commodity, pri- commodity prices have fallen sharply, these countries suddenly see themselves having to pay back a lot more of these resources. Um, and so a lot of a lot of concern has been raised about that in, in certain areas in Africa. Um, do you see similar concerns about that in, in a place like Venezuela? And, and are there a similar number of these kind of loans used in South America? Yeah, I think it's, um, well, first of all, that's just one of the most interesting questions, and it's a, a major change as a result of the um, commodity, the end of the commodity boom. Um, I guess the first thing I'd like to say about this is just that uh, there's been a discussion about this or China being the major source of development finance. And I think we need to distinguish. I don't think that it is necessarily the most appropriate way to categorize China's energy-backed loans as development finance. Those are basically deals where China is buying long-term, um, uh, uh, long-term flows of oil um, or other other energy. So this is something that I think needs to be distinguished. The other one, though, is like what are the burdens? 
these countries have taken on and what is their ability to repay. And I think Venezuela is the prime case globally for this. It's just going to take so, so long for them to pay back. And this is one of the things that jumped out at me, though, too, when I looked at the numbers from the Rottingham survey, which was that um, Angola uh, was the other clear um, largest recipient of China Development Bank loans. And it's also going to take time now that the prices are so low. And what that means in terms of domestic finances um, is a really big question. I want to take this conversation in a different direction now and bring it into the political realm. And, and this gets a little sensitive here because the Chinese oftentimes, you know, really contrast themselves with the United States and the West by saying that they don't interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, and they don't use the same kind of foreign policy leverage that oftentimes the United States do. So let me preface my question by kind of taking everybody back to the run-up to the Iraq War. And in that time, there was this joke called the Coalition of the Willing. And the Coalition of the Willing was this, uh, this program put out by the White House where all of a sudden, you know, Palau in the South Pacific, you know, if they would kind of stand up, uh, you know, alongside the Americans, give, you know, give a chef to the, to the coalition that they send to, uh, to Iraq, you know, and maybe one other guy who's a cleaner. And then all of a sudden they're part of the Coalition of the Willing. And in exchange, coincidentally, Palau gets a new fiber optic cable and a whole bunch of aid from America. Um, and now what I'm starting to see is the Chinese kind of playing out of that playbook a little bit. We've seen in the past two or three weeks now, African countries stand up in support of China in the South China Sea. And you're just like, what? You know, why would an African country give two cents about what happens in the South China Sea? Or you see, you know, this kind of proactive kind of, you know, diplomacy from the South Africans to deny entry to of the Dalai Lama into South Africa. Um, you, know, you, you know, so you start to wonder whether or not it, the sovereignty of African countries who owe tens of billions of dollars to the Chinese is now going to be compromised. The sovereignty that is maybe voting against the Chinese in a Taiwan-China dispute at the United Nations, maybe voting against the Chinese you know, uh, on an issue of the South China Sea. Maybe there's a, an international criminal court kind of proceeding that the Chinese have taken a side on. And Africa wants to stand, you know, Ghana wants to take a stand, but Ghana owes five, ten billion dollars to the Chinese. And the Chinese have shown themselves to be incredibly sensitive when it comes to these types of, you know, territorial sovereignty issues of their own, whether it's Xinjiang in the West or Tibet or human rights or the Dalai Lama or Taiwan or the South China Sea. How much do you think this type of loan making can start to encroach on sovereignty for particularly smaller African countries, such as Angola, such as uh, Ghana? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. And I think it's a, a question that is answered completely differently now in the sort of post-commodity boom phase, and especially for things like oil, but also other commodities, copper, iron ore, a variety of other things. Um, for those countries that took out loans uh, with China or anyone else um, and, and sort of were depending on revenue from resources to pay them back, it's a completely different situation now when these prices are low and it's really difficult to know when, the, when they're going to go up again. So the bargaining position of all of these commodity-dependent exporting countries from places in some places in Africa and South America, Southeast Asia, even the Middle East and elsewhere, um, the, the bargaining position has obviously changed. And that, I think that puts China and any other creditors 
um, in a different position. But I think the other side of this is that it's not necessarily always to China's benefit, clearly. They might be getting a better deal, they may be you know, getting better prices, or they'll be paid back for a longer time, but their partners are also in distress. And I think the other element of this is sort of, if China's seen to be taking advantage in a crass way, um, I don't think many people look at this, you know, when you get, when you get a country in, in, uh, in Africa that's sort of like on the side of China and the South China Sea, I don't think anyone looks at that and it's like, oh yeah, they've got a real interest in, in, in that. Yeah. So it's seen as a sort of crass bargain. So I think this has got to be a concern from a Chinese foreign policy point of view. Um, you know, there's been, a, recently in Africa, there's been a few kind of, you know, almost crises in, you know, with, with certain countries be, like being really on the on the brink of default. Um, I think Zimbabwe being a particular Mozam- kind of Mozambique now is also Mozambique that, also, yeah. yes. Um, and th- th- that has been the narrative of, of the Mozambican president recently visiting Beijing. It's like, you know, kind of to try and work out some kind of situation, some kind of, you know, kind of way to, to deal with, with this indebtedness. Um, what's going to happen politically in Africa, in China-Africa relations once the first nation starts defaulting on their Chinese loans? That, that is the question. One of the most interesting things I ever heard someone say to me about this, it was a Peruvian, former Peruvian official who said to me, you know, one thing that China has not yet experienced is when a country ends up unable to pay and they just look at you in the face and say, sorry, we're out of money or we're unable to pay. Now, the United States, European countries and others who've been through this kind of a process, it's not pleasant for anyone, but they've been through it. China has not yet been through it. I actually think what we see in the case of China, Venezuela is a slow motion default that has been taking place for a while now. And, you know, when we can look at, I think you mentioned a couple of equivalents in Africa, Zimbabwe, Mozambique. And the real question is, what, if anything, is China going to do, given its rhetoric of South-South relations, which sort of implies a friendship of developing country to developing country kind of relationship, and also their policy of non-interference? They have real commercial interests in sort of being able to get their money back, but they also have sort of committed themselves to being like a decent partner that is different from the United States or European countries. What will they actually do in a situation where it is not easy to come up with solutions? I think these are the countries where we need to continue to watch this. I'm glad I'm not in the situation of having to make a decision on the the, the Chinese side. Well, it strikes me that, you know, the numbers for South America and for Africa are quite significant. I mean, these are billions of dollars. But when you look at the, you know, the, the Chinese balance sheet, you know, this isn't that much overall for the Chinese. Um, even if it gets up into tens of billions of dollars as it was in Libya after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi and they lost, you know, a lot of money in their oil investments there, that really didn't shake the global markets. It's not necessarily going to bankrupt any of the state-owned enterprises. So really, you know, this is more important for Africa than it is for China, Right. Yeah, I guess I have two responses to that, because um, I've heard this a fair amount when it comes to China and, and, and Venezuela, and they're like, oh, they can just afford this. One of them, and I'm a Chinese taxpayer because I work at the University of Tsinghua, I think of this potentially as a massive waste of money, um, the idea that China is not a rich country. It is still a developing country. It has still come somewhere near number 90 in terms of GDP per capita. You know, it, what is in reality, you know, people talk about China being a rich government, but it's not rich per capita. And is it worthwhile 
to be sort of wasting money anyway, anywhere. So this is just sort of one general response that I have to that. But the other one is that I actually think that in terms of the specific deals and the companies involved and the banks involved, there's a lot at stake. And if we look at sort of just the, the um, image of China abroad or these companies in particular, I think we could easily see a sort of a situation where we find out that a deal has gone wrong, that China hasn't been paid back, the loans have been defaulted on, and there could be a major fallout in terms of like who's on the line for taking responsibility for this sort of loss of face. And again, I don't think we have to look much further than examples where things have gone wrong, say, for instance, in Libya, but also in places like Myanmar, the response has been one of like been very, very critical here at home. And there's a lot of people watching, Chinese citizens watching. They don't want the government wasting money or losing money abroad when there's so many challenges here in China. Kobus, it's interesting because you posted on on our Facebook page uh, recently about how Chinese you know public opinion is outraged. Uh, about the amount of money that China sends abroad. And a lot of people on, you know, responded to that kind of surprised because there's a perception in Africa that China is a developed country, not a developing country. And in fact, as Matt pointed out, in fact, it's poorer than many of African countries itself. So China is rich, but the Chinese are poor. That's kind of a, a nice distinction to make. So I'm curious to get your take on this, you know, Kobus, in terms of the perception of China, and particularly the misunderstandings that kind of Matt is alluding to, that people on the outside don't understand that public opinion in China actually matters. Yes, yes. There's a, there's a whole bunch of different uh, misconceptions happening here at the same time. In the first place, there is this misconception that that China is just super rich, that it's just essentially this like big fat piggy bank full of money, um, and you know, and in Africa, particularly very low awareness of, of how poor many Chinese are, um, and you know, so so this um, social media frenzy that I you know kind of that that you alluded to, you know, that they had these pictures of of children um, in a rural part of China making very arduous kind of treks to school, like up the side of a mountain, they look kind of distressed and tired and, you know, it, it looks hectic. So, and then there was all of, there were, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of Chinese citizens then asking, so why is the government giving away money to all of these these foreign countries and not fixing these problems in China? Which I think has been, a, a, you know, it's it's been a kind of a discourse that you see flaring up now and then in China, you know, on the Chinese internet. Um, and as I think as the, the Chinese economy shifts and changes, that discourse might become a, a lot more heated, especially, as Matt said, in the if there is a high-profile default. Um, and the perception that the kind of incompetent or, or corrupt foreign governments essentially threw away Chinese taxpayers' money. Um, but it's very interesting to then also see this playing from an African perspective because I frequently have, you know, kind of I, I look at social media in China-Africa relations as one of was one of my fields, and you know, so I teach on that with with African media students, um, and I frequently make the point to them like, look, you know, kind of in, in terms of GDP per capita and some some parts of China are actually poorer than many parts of Africa. And so how would you actually answer these people? You know, kind of like, why would China have to give money to Africa? Why at all? You know, considering there are so many poor people. And they so frequently have no answer to that because they are coming from a culture where everyone needs to be concerned about Africa. Africa is the poorest in the world. It's suffering the most in the world. Of course, you need to 
care about Africa, what else is there to think about Africa? You need to care for it. You know, there's there's, there's that kind of like like default kind of assumption that of, of Africa's position in relation to the world. And so it's a very difficult thing to, to articulate in an African space that, oh, Africa, for example, is might be wasting the world's money. You know, kind of that is almost never articulated in an African space. It's almost always the world is oppressing Africa in different kinds of ways. You know, mm-hmm. so, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting problem. Matt, let me give you the last word here. And it, it goes to this issue of, of the kind of the misperceptions on all sides about China's kind of financial, uh, you know, engagement with, the, with, with Africa and in South America, where a lot of Chinese, um, it's not very popular. Just like in the United States, foreign aid is not very popular. And just like in the United States, where if you ask public opinion what they think of foreign aid, they say, cut it, we don't need it. The money should be used at home. A lot of Americans actually think that we spend a lot more on foreign assistance than we actually do. It's actually one one-thousandth of the federal budget is spent on foreign aid, which is actually obviously insignificant in, the, in a $10 trillion you know, budget. Uh, the Chinese also have this perception that they're sending out you know, huge amounts when a lot of it is loans. It's not aid or they're not giving it away and they're not getting it back. So there's a lot of misperceptions on the Chinese side. Kobus just kind of you know, really alluded to the misunderstandings and misperceptions of the Chinese role in Africa. If you're a listener to this podcast, which I hope you are on a regular basis, um, what, what, what are you supposed to kind of walk away with in understanding where China fits in all of this? Well, I think overall, the, the key thing is that in general, the framework for China, both in reality and also from the way it does, the sort of government presents this to the, the people of China. And I think how it wants to generally be seen in most of the world is that it is doing well, both by itself and by its commercial partners, um, those both in the developing world in places like Latin America and Africa and elsewhere, but also everyone else, so that it's doing all these sort of win-win sort of things, um, and that it's not sort of special treatment, and it's certainly not aid, because I think it's sort of unviable for China to really do that in a massive scale. So it's really, it's doing business, and that's good for China, and it's good for everyone else. This is at least the rhetoric that China is selling to the world and to its people. That's the rhetoric. Uh, I guess there's a lot of room in there for interpretation, misinterpretation. You decide. Uh, Listen, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Matt Furchin is an associate professor of international relations at Tsinghua University and a resident scholar at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Uh, Just so grateful that you had time to join us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. And Kobus, thank you for joining us as well. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The show may be over, but the conversation isn't. Eric and Kobus are continuing the discussion over on Facebook. Head to facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where they're updating the news feed every four hours. Also, africachina.info is where the guys answer some of the toughest, most sensitive, even politically incorrect questions on all things related to the Chinese in Africa. That's africachina.info. And if you've got a China Africa question that you've always wanted to know more about, just hit up Eric and Kobus by email. The address is questions at chinaafricaproject.com. Thank you.